As we welcome along our vet today, Dr. Kimberly Earl is here talking about worms. Yeah, we're going to go over worms and dogs, cats, and a couple other things. All about worms. And also joining us from Bark is in Balance, Julie Tolliday. You've got a special guest coming up. Yes, I have. We're going to talk to Louise Stephen today about flyball and what it is and how the dogs compete. Julie Tolliday is with us. And we've got Louise Stephen with us to talk about flyball today. Hi, Louise. Hi, Julie. Now, flyball, a lot of people don't even know what it is. So can you start by telling us exactly what it is or describe it so we can visualise it? Um, I'll do my best. Okay. Um, flyball consists of a relay race between two teams of four dogs. So essentially each dog must jump over four hurdles, retrieve a ball by triggering a flyball box and then return over the hurdles to the start-finish line. Okay, and so it's two teams running side by side. Yes. So you've got dogs running past each other. That must be tricky to train. Uh, it can be, yes, depending on the dog. <laughs> so what sort of things do you do in your lead-up skills to, to help the dogs be able to cope with that? Um, so we want to build their confidence so that basically they can do a nose-to-nose cross passing another dog. So we would generally start them at a distance um, so that they're comfortable with another dog being in their space. Right. Um, and then we build it up so that they get closer and closer. So with some dogs, we do it by inches. Oh, okay. So we might start with two dogs being two metres apart from each other doing what we call a flat recall. So it's a bit like an obedience recall, except we're running full pelt in the opposite direction to get our dogs to chase us. Excellent. Um, and then we build it up so that we get the two dogs closer and closer to each other. Okay, sounds good. And what other, like, foundation skills do you need to teach them to go together with this? Um, so foundation skills-wise, I'm actually training my puppy at the moment, so I'm doing a lot of foundation mm. skill work. Um, so I'm doing that flat recall type stuff. Um, we also teach dogs to get what we call a dead tennis ball. Right. Um, because obviously they have to grab a tennis ball out of the um, fly ball box as part of the fly ball run. Um, So we teach um, them to grab what we call a dead tennis ball off the ground. So we might start with, you know, when you go to the park and you're just chucking a ball and your dog goes, runs and gets it and hopefully brings it back to you. We teach those type of skills so that they can actually get that ball when it's not moving on the ground. Because it's not that exciting when it's not moving, is it? No, clearly Mm. not to the dog. (laughs) No, so of course that's a skill that you'd need. And then the hurdles thing, I'm sure that most dogs don't turn up and just jump over four hurdles for you. Uh, No, definitely not. My first dog that I was training took six months to do four jumps in a row. Wow. Well, that's, you know, I mean, (laughs) I think the best thing in the world you can do is train a dog and learn about patience at the same time. Oh, yeah. And you get to bond with your dog. Absolutely. Certainly. Well, I've had a little taste with my dog, and I do know how thoroughly enjoyable it was to watch him get so involved. So are there any breeds that are best suited to flyball? Um, obviously any dog that's a working breed, so, you know, your Border Collies, your Coolies, your Kelpies, that kind of thing. Um, but in Flyball, it doesn't matter what breed your dog is. It can be a crossbred, it can be a purebred, we don't care. But what about the height of the hurdles? Um, so, yeah, in every single team there is what we call a height dog. So the height dog is the shortest dog in the team and that basically tells you what height the jumps will actually be. So the lowest height is 7 inches right? and the tallest height if you don't have a height dog in your team is 14 inches that the dogs have to jump. So it must be pretty spectacular to watch when it's all running as a competition. 
I think so. Yeah, well, yeah not that you're biased. No, not at all. <laughs> Definitely uh, not. <laughs> right. So, um, so wh- how long has it been around? Um, it's actually been in America for since the 70s, actually. Right. Um, but it's only been in Australia since the late 1990s. Right. I do know that I've seen demonstrations of it at the Royal Easter Show. I wonder if it's on in the show this year. It's not, actually. Oh, what a Very shame. Very upsetting. Yeah, well, you would be upset. Yeah, I've been doing it every year for the last five, six years. Oh, because I just think it's so spectacular to watch. So yeah. if people in Newcastle were wanting to participate, where would they go? Like their locations or a location? Okay, so I personally train um, fly ball up here on Thursday nights at the Hillsborough Dog Ground. Right. Um, round the back. Yep. Um, I actually do that in conjunction with my Sydney-based club, which is Norwest Fly Ball. Oh, okay. So if people wanted to find out, well, if they wanted to connect with you, what would yep. be the best way? Are you listed somewhere on a website or something? Um, if they Google Flyball, obviously. Yes. Um, but the Flyball has their own website, which is www.flyball.org.au. Right. Um, and if they look for clubs, because there, there will be a page on that that will go through the clubs, and we're Norwest Flyball. Yes, so they're not looking for Newcastle, they're looking for Norwest Flyball, yes, but so you as a branch of that. Yes, that's yes. correct. And I do know that when I was looking at it, I just went on to YouTube and put in Flyball, and there's certainly some very entertaining and exciting clips to watch there. Definitely. So people could get an idea from that. And yes. what about the most unusual dog you've ever seen Flyball? Um, I haven't actually seen it myself, but I have heard that in Victoria there's a Chinese crested. Right. With hair or no hair? Well, mainly no hair. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That would be very interesting. I can't think what that would look like. No. Um, Yes. I am actually training some Yorkshire Terriers at the moment. Oh, yes. Believe it or not. And little lilies, probably about two kilos. Yeah, well, there you go. So that would be a, that would be right down at seven inches, wouldn't it? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Look, Louise, that's wonderful information, and I hope that I, I can hear your enthusiasm. And if people are looking for something to do to engage with their dogs, I couldn't re- recommend it highly enough. So flyball for those who are listening, and um, we'll talk to you again soon. Not a problem. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Kimberly Earl chatting about worms. Yeah, I thought we'd just go over some um, worming basics for um, pet uh, pet owners. So, uh, in particular, dogs and cats are the ones we really want to focus on, um, making sure that our worming protocols are up up to date. Um, so, when we talk about worms, we're talking about intestinal worms, but then we're also talking about heartworms, and they are quite different. And when you go into your pet shop or vet hospital, um, most of the time people will say, "I need to get my dog wormed," and they're talking then about intestinal worms, and so a lot of the products you buy, they'll say that they're an, an all-wormer, but they really are talking just about gastrointestinal worms, and heartworms fall differently um, outside of that category in some cases. Um, so what are the important worms? Whipworm, tapeworm, hookworm, roundworm um, are the big ones that we see in our pet dogs and cats. Um, some of these infections can be fatal, particularly in young puppies and kittens. Um, 
Easy enough to worm them. You can pop into any vet hospital and pick up worming tablets. With puppies, we want to make sure that puppies are wormed from pretty much two to four weeks of age, every two weeks until they're three months. From three months old to six months of age, we want to be worming them monthly. And after six months of age, they can be on an adult worming protocol, which is basically one worming tablet every um, or one worming dose every three months for them. And the reason we need to do puppies so much more frequently is that puppies can be given worms across the placenta from their mothers or through the um, breast milk when they're when they're drinking um, suckling off of the mothers that's really important for anybody who has children at home it is really important that you keep your dogs and cats well wormed because a lot of these worms can be transmitted to people and can cause varying degrees of problems some of them quite serious so making sure that you're keeping your pet up to date is really really important Now, heartworm is a bit of a different beastie. Um, Heartworms can affect dogs, cats, and ferrets. Um, Heartworms are transmitted by mosquitoes. And so we never really know when a pet has contracted heartworms until they're actually showing clinical signs of the disease. And it's a very difficult disease to treat. Well, it's a very easy disease to prevent. So some of the products that are out on the market do cover heartworm, but they need to specifically say heartworm on the package or they don't cover heartworm. So just saying that it's an all-wormer doesn't do it. If it doesn't specify heartworm, it's not going to cover that. And it's really important that all of our pets ideally are covered for heartworm um, from the time they're about three months of age for their entire life. We do know that heartworm uh, infected mosquitoes are all through Australia. They tend to be more prevalent up in the northern regions, but there have been a number of cases in Newcastle in the last 18 months. So we do know it's here. And the trouble with heartworm disease is that because it's transmitted by mosquito, if your dog or your neighbor's dog, let's say, happens to be positive and a mosquito bites your neighbor's dog and then goes over and bites your dog, um, that's as easy that's the transmission there as easy as pie and you're not going to know about it and heartworm basically um, causes inflammatory changes and bleeding into the lungs and um, and into the immune system it causes problems with the immune system and in some cases the actual adult worms can form a, a blockage in the heart and cause heart failure and like I said we don't see the signs of the disease until the dog's already in trouble so really really important that you speak to your vet and make sure that your pet is covered for heartworm for sure it's Julie hello Julie and you're talking to our vet Dr. Kimberly Earle Hi, how are you? Hi, Julie. How can we help today? Uh, we inherited a Rottweiler puppy mm-hmm. um, from our next-door neighbours. Now, she is absolutely... She's only just turned 12 months old. Okay. Um, we've had her since she was six months old, but she is absolutely terrified of people. Of people? Okay. Of people. Right. She puts the tail between the legs if we get any visitors. Yep. And she just can't wait to get away from them. Okay. And does she ever warm up to them if they're sitting, you know, comfortably at the table or at the no, lounge? Does she had, ever warm up to we've them? Had, no, we've had people over here before. Mm-hmm and she just will not go anywhere near them. Okay. So, you know, in that sort of a circumstance, she obviously wasn't socialized appropriately um, in some of her, you know, real critical learning periods when yes. she was younger, and that would have been prior to you guys getting her, so that's not your fault. Um, but obviously she's got a lot of problems now. And one of the things that I'd say, when you have a severe case like that where she really isn't coping at all, she doesn't even warm up to it after, you know, the initial, like, sort of um, nervousness of, of new people coming, yes. is that she's a dog dog who probably needs some help either pharmacological or pheromone help something like that to to um, relax her a little bit um, we know that right. learning is inhibited by anxiety okay so dogs actually can't learn very well in a really high state of anxiety or stress yeah. and and so I would definitely take her in to see your vet have a discussion with them there's lots of tools that we can use these days not all of them are drugs there's things like um, adaptal collars and sprays and, and diffusers and things like that that can just help 
to um, ease some of that anxiety that she's feeling so that we can then work on, you know, desensitizing her and getting her used to being around other people and, and yeah, things like she, that. Um, yeah, well, and she, she was left alone. Like, yeah. They both worked and she was left alone and then yeah. they'd come home from work and she would have sort of gotten bored through the day and yeah. I know she ripped the kids trampoline yeah. then they'd go mad at her yeah but it was too late then because she'd already done that sort of yeah earlier on in the day. That's right. So, um, I mean, they're, they're not easy problems to fix, unfortunately. It's going to take a bit of time, but I would definitely go and speak to your vet about it as well to get some help. Yeah. Julie, you had something to say. Yeah. When I've got a dog like this also, I try to... I, I let the people know that the dog doesn't want them to make friends with them. A lot of well-meaning people will try to bend down to the dog and reach their hand out to the dog and try to make friends and the dog really really doesn't want it sometimes what i do depending on if the dog's in the house i'll i'll get the dog secure in a place where it's not out in the middle of everything and say to the people if the people are willing to follow me i'll say things like when the people stand up to maybe go to the toilet or whatever have a little thing of grated cheese and as they walk past just drop a little bit of grated cheese on the ground and keep walking so that the dog starts to not worry so much when the people are near it. They're not going to try to engage it. They're not going to look at it. They're not going to bend down to it. They just drop a little bit of cheese. And the dog starts to get the concept that, oh, every time those scary people go past, uh, cheese falls out of the sky. Like, that's pretty awesome. We also do another little exercise where with the timid dog, you've got the dog on a lead. You sort of need to be under instruction with this one. And you've got a person a long way away and you just throw a treat a little bit in front of the dog and you let the dog decide whether it wants to go to get that treat off the ground before it retreats back to you and you aim to reduce that distance between the the decoy person who's a fair way off Um, and that exercise is called treat and retreat for obvious reasons there's a treat take it come back to me so the dog feels safe in making its own little steps that way and our next call we've got denise with us now from mirabuka hi denise are you there Denise? Um, I have two cats. Both of them have been treated for secondary ear infections from biting mites. Yes, yep. And um, so in the meantime, I've been, I put a, a, um, a pheromone diffuser to calm them down because they've been miserable and they're scratching all the time. Yeah. So I went to the pet shop and I got some um, uh, pyrethrum shampoo and I've done the ragdoll cat mm-hmm. and he seems quite okay with that but I don't think I could do that with a Berman she's much more sensitive mm-hmm. so I'm thinking if if I do one and not the other with the full treatment are they going to is she going, one going to pick it up from the other again absolutely so what is have you been to the vet to get some proper medication for the ear mites yes, I've yes? Got, okay um, a pump pack here and it's enough to do me for two weeks and it's an ear suspension but the ears are very red yep. and I'm doing the two drop or four drops in each ear okay. twice a day yeah okay so some of the other things that you can use some of the other tools um, would be um, top spots like revolution and I believe advocate will do ear Mites as well, and well, you need to. They've been on advocate. They've been on advocate for ever since whenever they were able to. Might, but, might, yeah. might not be advocate. Then I'm not. I'm. There's so many products. It's hard to keep on top of it. Certainly, Revolution. If you're using it fortnightly for three treatments, should help with um, ear mites as well. Um, the, the ear mites really just live in the ears. So, you know, shampooing them completely probably won't make that much of a difference as long as you really are getting the drops into the ears of both cats um, and that we're making sure that we're getting that infestation, you know, sort of out of you know, under control. Um, I don't know that the shampooing will make a 
big, big difference. That, that should be okay. We have our vet, Dr. Kimberly Earle, here with us again today. And I always ask Kimberly, because I, I think it's very interesting in vet, because you have so many different animals or birds or <laughs> things that you can come in that you can work on on a week. So normally every day she comes in and says, have you had any interesting cases, cases. this week? And you yep. just told me you did have an interesting one. Can you share it with us? Um, yeah, we had a cat, a poor little cat, a nice young cat, though, who was um, missing for a number of days from its owner um, and came home on, a, I think it was a Saturday morning, um, unfortunately, the cat had been injured and had a big wound down the back of its legs. Um, and when we went to have a bit of a look at it, well, when the when the unfortunate owner went to have a bit of a look at it, she noticed that there was a number of maggots, live maggots inside the wound. So that necessitated a trip up to us for sure for some fairly heavy um, debridement and cleaning up of that wound. And hopefully that little cat is doing pretty well. We will see him again um, tomorrow evening and see how things mm. are going. Everybody else, I hope you're enjoying your lunch today. <laughs> nice to have you with it's us. It's a bit nasty of you, Dave, actually. <laughs> really. <laughs> That's me. I just wanted to share that one with you. <laughs> Around this time, we like to present our Pet Rescue Animal of the Week, and it's a pussycat today. It is indeed. It's a. They're describing it as a tortoise shell, but when I look at the photo, she's very grey and white with just some little cream and white patches around her. She's very, she's very cute looking. Pretty yellow eyes and white whiskers. Uh, she was rescued from the pound and she had a litter, and they're saying that she was a good mum, or she has been a good mum. Um, but she still acts herself like a playful kitten. Uh, she's got a very sweet nature, and she's gentle and laid back and extremely affectionate. And they're suggesting that you'll never be lonely when you get home from work because you'll be greeted happily, and she likes snuggling in your arms and maybe even sleeping on the bed. Um, not only does she love humans, but she's also in care with other cats and dogs and so gets along with other creatures, which is always good to know. She's not a fussy eater and she's litter trained and so far no accidents at the carer's house. I guess that's a good thing to report. Um, she ticks all the boxes according to Cat Rescue Newcastle and would fit into a variety of households so there's no sort of cautions on her there at all. Desexed, vaccinated, microchipped and flea and worm treated and her adoption fee is $150 so that sounds terrific to me. More information at Cat Rescue Newcastle with Mel and her number is 0405-595-075. And of course, you can see all the details about our Pet Rescue Animal of the Week, including photos at our 2NURFM website, 2NURFM.com. You can see them on the uh, 2NURFM Pet Chat page or our community page. Just go to that and you can have a little look and find out all the details. Now, we mentioned a traffic incident at Maitland Hospital that we had the traffic backed up through the railway station. It appears that there was a oil spill at the roundabout in Maitland a little earlier down near the train station, but traffic is now starting to get through. Let's continue with your calls for our vet, Dr. Kimberly Earle, and we've got David joining us now from Windale. Hi, David. How can I help? Oh, good afternoon. How are you? Look, I've got a... I inherited a cat. Um, he's probably, uh, like, approximately... He could be about seven years old. Okay. Uh, he was ill-treated, in a sense. Um, now, um, he's been to sex, I've been told, and I just inherited him. I felt sorry for him. He used to sleep outside on the trees in the rain and all that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, now I changed his diet around a little bit. Um, I put flea collar on him. I didn't put a flea collar on him. I only got an identification collar on him. Mm -hmm. A very nice temperament. He always sleeps inside in his own bed now. But I've noticed he does lick himself a hell of a lot. And I noticed like his skin sort of a little bit agitated all the time. I don't know. Yeah. Well, he's got an allergy. I give him, I, I do change his diet. Mm-hmm. 
Um, he doesn't drink milk, he only drinks water. Okay. So I'm just wondering whether so, he's got a skin allergy or... He, he certainly could. So, I mean, the first thing that we would always, um, you know, sort of recommend is making sure that, that fleas aren't a problem. Um, using something a little bit more effective than a flea collar would be ideal. So you said you've got a little name tag collar, but maybe look at getting him, um, you know, some sort of a systemic flea um, treatment for him. Um, that can be really, really common, particularly in cats that have potentially had um, heavy flea burdens in the past. They may have developed a flea allergy. So different to when they actually have lots of fleas on them, but they can still have a flea allergy even if they get a single bite. So definitely worthwhile making sure he's got very, very good flea control on board, um, something like Comfortis or um, maybe Advocate. Or th- There's a number of products out on the market. Um, if he's got any little scabs through his skin, lumps and bumps that are scabby, he may actually have a secondary skin infection that will require some antibiotics to clear up. And those can be very itchy in and of themselves. So so bacteria on the skin that are causing problems can be very itchy and can make these cats um, self-traumatize, which then actually leads to further problems. So, you know, if there's anything like that, definitely worthwhile, um, you know, getting him up to a vet and just having him checked out, making sure that there isn't something going on. Um, a little bit more further afield, we certainly can see cats, um, so we definitely can see allergies for other reasons as well, um, but even things like um, skin cancers and things like that can can crop up and can make them itchy sometimes. Um, so it's, you know, it's definitely worthwhile having a look, um, having a vet have a look at him. Make sure you've got him treated really well for fleas and worms just to be on the safe side. Um, And if he's still itchy, then get him up to your local vet and have him checked out. All right, good luck with that. Thank you for giving us a call today, David, on Pet Chat here right through to 1 o'clock today. And Julie Tolliday, we're talking about, uh, is it scent detection? Yes, I did a course a couple of weeks ago learning about training dogs to be scent detectors to people who suffer from type 1 diabetes. And I was intrigued because I thought, well, what do they smell? And type 1 diabetics, diabetics, their main danger is if their glucose levels fall too low, um, the, the ultimate is they could end up in a diabetic coma. And I hadn't sort of thought about it before, but if they're asleep and their levels drop low and they don't wake up, well, maybe they won't wake up. And now the most incredible thing I learned... How what, would the dog be able to gauge this? Because in their, when a person is having a low, a diabetic, type 1 diabetic is having a low, there's a factor in their saliva and they're not able to identify it, but they've just called it factor X. I know it sounds a bit voodoo, but factor X is in their saliva when their reading drops below 4 and it's the same scent across any type 1 diabetic. So what they do is... So if I'm asleep and I'm drooling, the dog will know. Well, no, it doesn't quite go there. You've (laughs) got to train the dog to smell the whole presence of Factor X in that sleeping person. So the way that they do it is they take saliva samples. You know those cotton log roll things that the dentist shoves in your mouth? Well, they a swab? Get, yeah. Well, no, it's not a swab. Is it a swab? swab? A, We've got a doctor kind here. Of, yeah. Kind of. <laughs> it's a log-shaped yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And then the yeah. dentist tries to talk to you and you've got them stuck in your mouth and you can't say anything. Yeah. So the diabetic sticks it in their mouth when their reading is low, gets as much saliva on it as they can, put it in the freezer because that's your training tool. And then you train the dog oh, to be okay. interested in that and to sniff it. And each time they sniff, you reward them with food at the source of that smell. Now, we would think, what are they smelling? But you do a 1,000 repetitions of that. And during the 1,000 repetitions, you start telling your dog that when they're sniffing, 
you want them to indicate. Is this working successfully? Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. And so you do lots of then proofing with the dog. You'll have the scent in one tin and a blank in the other. You offer the dog the choice. Once they've done a thousand repetitions, they go to the original scent every time. Then you start hiding it on your body. And you're wanting the dog, you're wanting to pick up what the dog's doing at that time, that you want them to nudge you or you want them to paw you so that in the night, if the, if the diabetic is asleep, the do- it'll wa- it will wake the dog up. The dog will recognize. Wake the owner up. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll wake the owner up. Yeah. And then the end sequence is not that they're woken up. The dog is trained to go with the owner to their kit to test their blood sugar level and then to to take on their glucose. There was a man on the course, he's got a 17-year-old daughter with such erratic diabetes, they can't control it. The diet, the insulin, she wears a pump. So that dad is getting up 10 times a night to check on her Mm. because she's not showing, you know, she just, it's all over the shop. They've got a dog that they've half-trained. So they did this workshop that we were doing with this American specialist, mm. and I'm just so hoping that that dad can get some night's sleep because that Labrador that she's got. That's clever. Where can we find out more details about that, Julie? Oh, gee, I tell you what, I would send people to probably a site for Debbie K D E B Y K A Y. Now she's in America, but she would be open to communication mm. from people saying there is a woman who I think is near Mudgee. And she's doing it in Australia. I can get more info on that. I can't remember the name of her people. That is brilliant. I like that. Mm. And if they do want more details, obviously, maybe you could have a chat to them yeah, too from look, Barkers can, in Balance. Yes. Just contact you. Yep, um, do we have a dog show that you know of this week? Yes, I think there's one, isn't there? There is, in fact, a German Shepherd Dog Club uh, two-day event at the Hillsborough Road um, Canine Club. Uh, it's, it's a championship show and obedience trial. And it's Saturday and Sunday, 9 a.m. for both days. Okay. And just before we go, um, one more thing you might like to share with us about worming and the importance of that. Oh, you put me on the spot. Um, importance of worming. Definitely make sure that you're, if you've got kids, my, I've got my three-year-old daughter, the amount of time she's on the floor with my dog um, or playing in the backyard, sandbox is a really big source of contamination. Um, it's not just about, you know, dog and cat health. It's certainly about human health as well. And with heartworm disease, we are starting to see numbers of heartworm um, positive cases possibly on the rise. So um, make sure your pets are well, um, well prevented on heartworm preventative. Great. Thank you both for today. That's a pleasure, Dave.